The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Forever! Dog! Just between us. Hey! Just between us. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and fan of chain restaurants. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and migraine sufferer. Yes, you're not feeling so good right now? Yeah, I'm in a rally through this intro, but it's okay because we have an amazing guest. So if we do a short intro, just know I'm, I'm rallying through the beginning of a migraine, but it's okay, guys, because... We did this interview before I had a migraine and it was an incredible interview. So I feel good about it. I think it's one of our best episodes, if I may be so bold. I was about to say, I think it's one of our best. Yeah. Well, just because they were such an informed, incredible guest on a topic we we haven't covered yet before. No, I'm very excited. Um, we have Amethyst Schraber, who's going to talk all about autism. Uh, but let's say what the show is first. This is Just Between Us, a variety <laughs> show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games and brutal honesty. You, bo- you and I both had wanted to have someone on to talk about autism for a while. Yes, because I think a fan had reached out and been like, why haven't you talked about this? And I was like, I don't know. Great totally. question. And especially it's like such a it's always such like a hot button thing that people use as a scare tactic, which I hate. What do you mean? Just like they'll be like, oh, my God, you know, what causes it? What can we do? And it's mm-hmm. like enough like (laughs) i think like the it's used as like almost like a version of satanic panic in some ways like it's like i don't know it's used as like a shaming thing for parents in a way that i find very distasteful if their kids have autism yeah it's like oh what did you do wrong like i see that a lot in media or i see like the thing of like oh uh, you know mostly feeling bad for the people in the autistic person's life and not the autistic person getting to speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I hate it. And that's my stance. You perked up there. Yeah. Once I was able to be angry, all of a sudden my headache got better. (laughs) And that's the opposite of what happens to most people. (laughs) How often do you get migraines? Once every few months. It's like sucks because you can't predict it. So like I have Mm -hmm. some stuff I want to do today. It might not happen. Yeah. Do you have any medicines that work or not really? Yeah, I have a prescription medicine for it, but it knocks you out. Oh. So how much is it actually helping the migraine and how much is it just putting you to sleep? I'm sorry to everyone listening that I'm not in tip top shape right now. It's okay. Because this Friday's episode isn't about us. Friday's episode is about our guests. That's true. I'm so excited. Yeah. Stick around after the break for our fantastic interview with Amethyst Schraber all about autism. And it's just so informative and they're so delightful. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. Our guest this week is Amethyst Shaver. Amethyst blogs and makes videos about autism, neurodiversity, and disability. They are a writer, public speaker, artist, and activist. Hello, Amethyst. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So, okay, so we wanted to have you on and we're going to ask a very uh, obvious question up top. What is autism? (laughs) So uh, (laughs) everybody is currently asking that question and everybody will give a slightly different answer. But I like to start from the point that autism is a pervasive neurodevelopmental condition. So pervasive meaning it affects every aspect of your being and how you experience the world. And the neurodevelopmental indicates that you are born autistic. Mm -hmm. You will live autistic and there is no cure for autism. It isn't an illness. It is a condition. Some people say disorder. I don't like that terminology so much. Some people say neurotype, which might be a new word. And it's just a way to describe people who share similar experiences, um, maybe similar traits or symptoms. And we can kind of cluster them together in what we call autism. And and what was your sort of your journey of of getting diagnosed? Were you diagnosed as a child? (laughs) 
Uh, I wasn't. So I'm what is usually referred to as an adult diagnosed autistic person. Obviously, I was autistic, but I've heard it likened to kind of like the planet Pluto. It wasn't discovered uh, until the 20th century, but it always existed. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) looking back on my childhood, I can very clearly see that I've always been autistic. It is very much an answer to all these questions and insecurities I always had about myself. How I discovered it is I entered a kind of vocational college for uh, art and design. And I was in that graphic design program and I experienced something that we call autistic burnout, which Mm -hmm. is when you have been living your life and trying to get by in a world that isn't built for us. It is very loud and fast and chaotic. And there's a lot of transitional like life changes happening around that time that can be really big stress as well. And trying to keep up with the pace of the program and just not knowing yet that I was autistic, wondering what is wrong with me and why can't I do this? And just trying to push harder and harder. And eventually I crashed. And when I crashed, I thought I was going crazy, so to speak. And so I entered the psychiatric system here in Canada. I was referred to a program for early psychosis intervention to determine if maybe I had a psychotic disorder. And I went there. I was assessed by a very lovely team. They said, no, you don't appear to have a psychotic disorder, some OCD tendencies, but we think maybe you have autism and we're not qualified to do that here, but good luck. (laughs) Please leave now. Wow. So there I was. And I had heard the word autism before, like in the previous few years. And I had already kind of identified as having sensory processing disorder, Mm -hmm. which is a very common autistic experience. But I had a lot of the misconceptions in my mind that many people do about autism. And I was like, well, I can talk and I'm not sure that I have the lack of emotions that autistic people are supposed to have. If anything, I feel things so intensely. So I had to research and I did. And that research led me to making the personal decision that isn't right for everybody. But uh, at the time, it it seemed right. I wanted to be professionally assessed. So I paid, my husband and I paid out of pocket to have me assessed uh, as an adult. And I saw some very lovely people at a clinic here local to me. And they were like, dang, you sure are autistic. (laughs) So what I had come to suspect over the last couple of years was, yeah, I am autistic. I have this very fancy multi-page report to prove it. But am I any more autistic than I was before? No. Knowing what I know now, would I still go in for a professional diagnosis? Maybe not. But at the time, especially as like a baby autistic, uh, it was nice to have that validation. And I know I was very lucky and privileged to be able to do that for myself. And that was in about 2013. Mm -hmm. Um, And around that time, I started blogging on Tumblr and getting connected to the larger online autistic community. And here I am now. (laughs) (laughs) And why do you say that maybe knowing what you know now, you wouldn't go and get the professional diagnosis? Autistic people uh, are not very well understood. We are often marginalized. We are discriminated against. And in many cases, for an adult diagnosed autistic person or not an adult autistic person, having that diagnosis, that mark in your chart, it can be a hindrance as much of a help. There are autistic adults who are parents who have had their fitness for parenting questioned. There are autistic adults who would like to adopt and that like Mm. mark against them because of anti-autistic ableism. Uh, It's like a problem. And just there's been times when I was in like, I'm chronically ill and physically disabled as well. So I've been in the medical system for about a decade, uh, seeing lots of doctors and specialists. And there's been times when completely unrelated to my autism, I've had doctors grill me about my autism diagnosis. I've had them presume that I'm incompetent or in some way or that I don't understand what's happening or or they just disbelieve me and try to tell me I'm not autistic. So there's this, it's this really interesting experience of having a diagnosis and it's disbelieved or uh, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a mark against you or it can harm you. So it was nice in the moment to have that validation. But now that I've been more involved in the autistic community and I find more of my validation from other autistic people and my own experience, I don't necessarily feel that same need for the medical validation. And in fact, now that I've grown a bit in my understanding of autism and autistic culture, I kind of bristle a little bit the medicalization, but you know, it's what happened. So I have that in my file. I was going to ask, what was the medical community like looking for as a marker? I saw a team of people. One of them was an occupational therapist. And there were some simple, short physical tests. They had me 
to stand and tell a story and saw what kind of gestures I used. They had me walk across the room and saw what my gait looked like uh, because many autistic people have something called motor dyspraxia, where there's a kind of either a disconnect or a lag between our body and our brain. And that can affect fine motor control or large motor control. So they looked for that. They asked me many, many questions about my life and my experiences. Uh, They actually contacted my mom and asked her about what my childhood was like and looked for kind of markers there. Uh, and there were some that indicated, you know, the, the motor dyspraxia, the uh, sensory processing issues that I have. And then also they just uh, gave me this questionnaire to do. And I didn't realize in the moment that it was a test that when they said, we have this pr- fairly long questionnaire for you to fill out, it'll ask you questions about autism spectrum symptoms, would you like to answer it verbally or would you like to sit and write and type on the laptop? And I said, oh, obviously I'm going to write it down. <laughs> like, if and I that can was avoid, part of the test. Yeah, if I can avoid using the mouth words, I'm going to. So I sat there and I, it says in my, it says in my uh, assessment that Amethyst proceeded to work at the questions silently for nearly 40 minutes until finished and that um, I was like rocking slightly while doing so. So I didn't realize I was like being tested Mm -hmm. even in the ASD questionnaire. And then when I, you know, answered those questions, it said, wow, you have a lot of similar experiences to autistic people. You're probably autistic. And so now there's been like a change in terminology somewhat recently, right? Can you talk a little bit about that and how like Asperger's isn't really used anymore and now it's sort of just seen as a spectrum disorder? So uh, with the DSM-5, which again, it's the medicalization, so some people don't go in for that, but with the DSM-5, uh, Asperger's and um, something called PDD-NOS, uh, Pervasive Developmental Disorder, not otherwise specified, was kind of all wrapped up into autism spectrum disorder because we have a better understanding that these are all actually the same things, um, along with Rett syndrome. So now it's kind of autism spectrum disorder uh, one, two, or three. And those, that's kind of a thorny subject, the one, two, and three, because it's supposed to indicate your functioning level, but it's really, it's not really how autistic you are. It's how autistic other people, usually not autistic people perceive you to be. Mm. So somebody who previously had the diagnosis of Asperger's, like they can still choose to identify that way, but that would kind of be considered autism spectrum disorder one now. Mm -hmm. And more and more autistic people I know, I do tend to hang out in more like leftist neurodiversity movement autistic circles, but more and more autistic people I know move away from using Asperger's to autism for a bunch of reasons, but it's like a kind of community feeling, like not ranking us in how useful we are to capitalists or how disabled we seem to other people. And then there's also the kind of Hans Asperger, uh, operated within like Nazi Germany and was German. And there are some historical facts about his work and what he told the German government, which was obviously very uh, eugenics focused at the time about autistic people and which of us were useful and which of us weren't. So for obvious reasons, many like to get away from Asperger's for that reason. And then just saying autistic it's it's just easier sometimes. <laughs> like, And I, I like it because I always say I'm autistic, and not a person with autism, because, you know, it's not something shameful or something I want to distance myself from. For me, the identity first language is a way to consciously say it is something that affects every part of my life. And it's an identity that I'm even proud to own. Like I wouldn't say, I'm a person with non-binariness, <laughs> like I'm a non-binary <laughs> person. <laughs> so, um, you know, again, that's an individual preference and I would never tell any other autistic person how to identify. Some say on the spectrum and some say Asperger's still and some say, you know, autistic. Uh, but for me, autistic feels right. And I like that more and more people are just choosing to identify as autistic. The autistic community means a lot to me and autistic culture in particular. I find a lot of joy and pride. It can be hard to keep going as an activist. So a lot of my motivation and my energy comes from other autistic people and and the struggles that we share, but also the joys. Yeah. And it's so nice to feel like you have that part of a community. And also I'm sure as people are maybe figuring out later on in life that they are autistic or Mm -hmm. even teenagers, kids, like to just see that community and be able to join it and have those resources, I'm sure, so valuable. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I think the time that I am 
happiest and proudest of my work uh, educating about autism is when autistic people themselves come to me and say, either I knew I've been autistic my whole life, but I've hated it. Like it's something Mm -hmm. I didn't like about myself. And now because of, you know, my work as an entry point, maybe, or one of many entry points to the community, they have come to a place of more acceptance to be gentler with themselves, to understand that they're not broken and there's not something wrong with them, that they're not this dysfunctional, non-autistic person. They are a beautiful and often traumatized by society, autistic person. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I love hearing from parents too. And I love hearing back when I've given advice and then the parents report back to me and say, it's working. Like my, <laughs> my child is maybe not any less autistic. Maybe even they seem more autistic now that I've stopped trying to like change who they are, but they're happier, like they're healthier. Our home is like more joyful. And yeah. I, I love that. But I, what I really love is hearing from autistic people who you know, they find that community and they find some self-acceptance and they learn how to accommodate themselves and how to ask for what they need. Like that's, that's my favorite part. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about that? Like accommodations yeah. and how does it impact your day-to-day life and how can people be more aware of that? And if they have someone yeah. in their life who is autistic, how to, you know, accommodate them better? I guess the first thing is that if somebody you work with or, you know, or a friend comes to you and says, I'm autistic, First of all, never say, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I know you can feel put on the spot and your brain kind of blanks for a moment. Like I said things that maybe weren't the best, but uh, just say something like, thank you for telling me. And if it's appropriate, you can say, is there anything else you'd like me to know about that? Or uh, is there anything I can do to make you more comfortable here? Mm -hmm. Things that we often ask for are sensory things in our environment because lots of autistic people are oversensitive, uh, as they say. Although, I mean, how do you say what's the right amount of sensitive? But many of us, you know, are sensitive to noises or lights, colors, smells, and these things might bother us in a way they don't bother you. So if somebody who's autistic, or maybe you don't know they're autistic, but if somebody comes to you and says, these fluorescent lights are really bothering me. Could we open the curtains maybe and have natural light instead? Like just, it sounds so simple, but just trust that we know ourselves and what we need. And if it's like reasonable and doesn't hurt anybody, sure. And sometimes things might seem a little weird. And that's a lot of what autistic people come up against when trying to advocate for ourselves and accommodate is there's just this like society-wide subtle casual ableism about what you're supposed to look like, how adults are supposed to conduct themselves, even how children are supposed to act and behave. Mm-hmm. There's an activist, uh, Lydia Xed Brown, that I really respect and admire. And I've been to a few of their presentations or their workshops and they're autistic. And at the beginning they say, spaces should work for us and our bodies. And expecting you to sit here for an hour while I talk is not reasonable for many of you. So if you need to get up and, and take a break, please do. If you need to move or sit on top of your desk or under your desk or lie on the ground, like do what you need to do to make your bodies comfortable. And that's something I love about autistic culture is that we often make space for everybody's bodies to be more comfortable. And we can take that like idea. And if you're a non-autistic ally, you can say, you know, it might look a little weird. Uh, You might miss five minutes if you need to go take a break and, and like unstress, or you might you know, sit on the ground rather if that's more comfortable for you. But it's better to be comfortable and have more of your brain processes and more of your processing energy devoted to actually being present and in the moment than trying to sit there and I'm like repeating to myself, okay, don't stand with my hands, keep my feet on the floor. Oh, fuck, I'm rocking. Don't rock. Look up front. Am I listening? What did they just say for the last five minutes? You know? <laughs> so uh, I think just believing us about our experiences, that is something doesn't bother you doesn't mean it doesn't bother us. Mm -hmm. And then being willing to get a little weird, because a lot of that self monitoring and and attempting to normalize our own behavior takes up so much time and energy for autistic people, and really contributes to that burnout I talked about. So it's a good way to be an ally. That's called masking, right? Yeah, uh, that's a term that a lot of people use. Something I do like to mention when I mention masking is that not every autistic person is capable of it. Because there are autistic people who have Um, more debilitating levels of motor dyspraxia. There's this disconnect between their body and their brain that means it's hard to make their bodies do what they want, or they may have speech apraxia and not be able to speak verbally. Uh, And they may just act in a way that is very obviously autistic and they're not able to mask. 
but you know, many autistic people can and do, and that masking any, I think, I think almost everybody, maybe except for like cis abled white men have had to worry about what their bodies look like in public. Mm -hmm. And everybody has some experience with some level of like self-monitoring and, and anybody who's dealt with that knows how tiring it can be. And, and for autistic people, it's at this whole other level because we're also dealing with all this sensory input from our environment. We're trying to seem non-autistic as possible. And then it's so discouraging when you're trying so hard and you're not, <laughs> you're not coming off as non-autistic. <laughs> like there's, I've been called the nicer things like quirky, you know, or like different, unique. But then I've also been called, especially when I was younger and couldn't mask so well, like freak or um, very cruel things. So it's it's so discouraging to be trying to mask really hard. And then you see a video of yourself or someone is like, no, I I definitely knew something was up, <laughs> that you were autistic. So uh, masking is this double-edged sword because not everybody can mask and those who can, it's sometimes a, a matter of necessity. Mm -hmm. Like if you have to work to sustain your life in a capital capitalist society, um, then you might need to mask to keep your job. Or if you are a parent, like again, that, 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 misconception of like how fit you are as a parent if you're autistic might come up and then also there's this intersection of race and gender with autism where a black autistic man who is in public might not get the same social grace uh, as a white autistic person uh, the autistic stimming behaviors or the atypical movement can definitely due to racism and, and anti-blackness in particular be attributed to like drunkenness or being inebriated in some way and like there is a real fear for black autistic people of seeming off and that's like a reason that law enforcement or just <laughs> white bullshit like could mm -hmm. could wreck their whole day uh so with masking it's sometimes this necessary evil exhausting mm -hmm. as it is it's always nice to say like be yourself and like drop the mask and and I think everybody I hope everybody can find places and spaces where that's possible for them like all autistic spaces are great for that but all autistic spaces still aren't free of racism and I can't say everybody should just be themselves and stim openly and because I you know my experience isn't universal and there's a lot of that intersection going on and can we talk a little bit about like how it's often easier for like cis men to get diagnosed correctly? <laughs> yeah. And how it can present differently in, in non-cis men and, and how yeah. there's misconceptions about that? So uh, I get so many questions and emails and messages about this all the time from autistic women and just non-men. And it's this tricky multi-layered issue when you talk about gender and autism, because it's not that autistic women or autistic non-binary people are actually have a different kind of autism, which is, I think some people misunderstand. There's like female autism. It's that in our society, different people are perceived different ways and socialized different ways. Mm. And so autistic boys growing up may have a lot more leeway because of sexism and the patriarchy to be messy and be interruptive and be loud or to be a little bit off. There's like the eccentric professor kind of stereotype. We've always had these ideas of like quirky and kind of asocial individuals who are smart, but, you know, not not very uh, socially graceful. And, and that they're always men. They're always white men. And whereas girls, people perceive to be girls, like I grew up as a girl, uh, we don't get the same grace often. We often have to take parenting roles, you know, as children and take after our siblings, we often don't get the same leeway to to be what stereotypically autistic boys look like. And not every autistic boy is going to look the same either. It's just when autism was first developed as like a category of diagnosis because of sexism and because of racism, they were just often looking at white boys. And there's also, again, this intersection of race. Uh, so women are more likely to be diagnosed with things like borderline personality disorder or generalized anxiety rather than autism, because, well, you make such good eye contact and you're so pretty. 
and women like learn to mask and, and, you know, copy their friends. So, oh, well, you can't be autistic. And then black people are more likely to, when they're autistic, be misdiagnosed with just oppositional defiance disorder and these other like bullshit racist terms that are, it's like very frustrating for me. Uh, my close to home, my nephew is um, black and he's autistic and I was so actually surprised. And then I was so sad that I was surprised when he was able to get an autism diagnosis because mm. I just expected worse. Like mm-hmm. I've heard from so many black autistic people and I've heard so many stories of like just getting those shortest end of the stick. And it's still really, really hard uh, for anybody but a cis white guy to be diagnosed as autistic when they are. It is getting a little better, uh, but still diagnosis is always going to like skew white and it's always going to skew affluent too like mm-hmm. kids who are poor from poor homes or uh single parents are again more likely to get diagnoses like oppositional defiance disorder or uh adhd when they're like maybe adhd and autistic so i'm not sure if that's a very clear or helpful answer <laughs> i can basically only say like yes this happens and it is because of a combination of factors and it sucks and i wish you didn't Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a ton of sense. You know, I think that like it's because with all of these diagnoses, it's not like, oh, we can just do an MRI scan of your brain and determine exactly what you have. A lot of it is just the bias of whoever is doing the diagnoses. And so you see a five-year-old black boy maybe behaving differently than his classmates to give him oppositional defiant disorder. Like, yeah, that that's what leads to conduct disorder, which leads to like you know like it's, exactly it's like yeah. completely different thing to have and a different type of treatment and you know it's so but it's yeah. just caused by the biases of whoever is giving the diagnosis which is so unfair it is and so that's another thing it's like diagnosis in theory is great but you are at the mercy of a team or even just one person and mm-hmm. that one person so many people message me saying, I went in for a diagnosis or I went, my child, I brought my child in and they told us I can't be autistic because I have friends. Or yeah. this is supposedly an autism expert. And they told me my child can't be autistic because they didn't say he's black, but they said families like ours don't have autism. So even when even the experts are so still ignorant or operating on very old ideas of mm-hmm. what like Canner's classic autism, you have to be like nonverbal, you have to have like the severe motor dyspraxia. When you can't even trust the experts, I say maybe come over to the autistic community. (laughs) Maybe read the writings of autistic people and uh, the autistic parents of autistic children and just see if that resonates, you know? Mm -hmm. And it often does. And people say, oh, 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 (laughs) autistic. (laughs) Is a lot of the misconceptions also due to portrayals in media, portrayals in TV and movies and books. Like, can you speak to that a little? Sure. So obviously humans love stories. We love fiction. It's a really great way to learn empathy and to experience a viewpoint different than yours. I've always loved reading and because the people telling the stories are often cis, abled, white, straight, those are the stories you hear. And so even when they want to tell say an autism story they're gonna make the main character a white cis male who is autistic because like too many intersections is hard or something and like there of course there are black women who are wheelchair users and autistic but we Mm -hmm. don't see those stories so they're more and more we're seeing a little more representation sometimes you see Women with autism, we saw a black character, a uh, black autistic character in the Power Rangers movie that came out a few years ago. That was very cool. And I was like, oh, I hope my nephew watches that one because like <laughs> one piece of representation, right? But a lot of the representation we've had isn't great. And even if it is good, it's it's a certain kind of person. It's a certain kind of person who's still most likely to be writing scripts and directing mm-hmm. films, just like mm-hmm. white men. I feel like it goes either towards this is a superpower and the autistic person is has a superpower or yeah. this is a burden on the person's family. Those are like the two representations I yeah. see the most. Yeah, that's that's apt. I'd say that's true. Um, I'm thinking of this show. I don't even know if it was in America, but on Canada, we have the sci fi channel. And then years ago, maybe a decade, there was this show called Alphas. And it was about 
normal people who develop superpowers. And one of the characters was autistic. Uh, he was a cis, straight, like, cis, uh, straight white boy, of course. But his, like, autism was explained as he actually sees these electromagnetic waves everywhere. And when he's stimming with his hand, he's not just pointlessly stimming. He's, like, turn, turning the different waves and like tuning in and he's not staring off into space. He's like watching like all these video feeds from all over the planet. And I'm like, (laughs) at the time I knew nothing. I was very ignorant. I was like, that's kind of cool. Now I'm like, please. (laughs) (laughs) I promise you that when autistic people do things, even if it doesn't look pointful to you, like if it doesn't look like it has a purpose, it does. Like Mm -hmm. when we stim, it's to offset sensory input in our environment or it's to express ourselves or it's just the natural autistic way our body moves. And when you say no, but actually it's because he's like tuning into the different like radio wave channels. It's it's like, no, there doesn't need to be some superpower to it. There doesn't need to be some other reason that you can understand better. Like there is already a reason. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, like you said, if they're not giving us superpowers so that it's okay, we're autistic, like it balances out, we're just, we're like plot points or we're like methods of growth for non-autistic characters or we're these burdens on on people's lives. Just something to either inspire because oh, how sad and yet still like they they're happy and they they're unaware but that little autistic angel is like bringing light to people's lives just just by teaching them how to love better or whatever the fuck I don't know <laughs> I just, and, and it's so it's dehumanizing both ways because when you have to give us superpowers to make us worth seeing or knowing like we see that like we mm-hmm. we see mm-hmm. you uh, we understand the messaging. Like, yeah, give us a reason for existing. And then when we're burdens, obviously that is dehumanizing in in a way that actively leads to real world harm and consequences. When you hear again and again this narrative that autistic people are burdens on their families, uh, that they break up marriages, that autism is this fate worse than death. Like I can't tell you the incredible harm that has on real autistic people. And, you know, uh, it's like when Jaws came out, there was like a rash of, of sharks being culled and, and shark deaths. And that's the way that fiction can affect reality is, is powerful. And we have to be careful about the stories we tell and who's telling these stories, like the Sia movie that recently came out. That mm. was a really, that's a, music was a prime example of how not to tell an autism story, not to, like how not to write an autistic character. Uh, and it bombed. And for good reason, yeah. like the autistic community was all over that, right? We were like, please don't watch this. It sucks. And maybe in the past, it would have been hailed as like inspiring mm-hmm. and a, a triumphant non-autistic portrayal of autism. So I don't know, maybe the fact that it bombed is like a little hopeful. We don't just have to focus on on stopping non-autistic people from co-opting our stories, though. We have to put autistic writers and autistic mm-hmm. filmmakers and directors in a position where they can tell our stories in our way that, sure, maybe sometimes we can have superpowers, but it's not, you know, the only depiction mm-hmm. we see. Maybe we can depict the harder parts of being autistic uh, and how, you know, society is very unwelcoming to us, but without it being this sob story or inspiration porn. Mm-hmm. I, I trust us most to tell our stories. Definitely. I mean, that makes that makes the most sense. And I think I think it is great that that Sia's movie bombed. And for people who aren't familiar Mm -hmm. with it, basically, she created a movie that was about an autistic girl and the portrayals were not accurate and also pretty harmful. Right. I mean, it involved like can you speak to like. Yeah. So in the movie, at three different points in the film, um, the autistic character is put in a restraint. And restraints are actually used every day all over North America to deal with autistic people's meltdowns. It's often because we're very overloaded. And so our bodies might move or react in ways that we can't control in the moment. We might scream. And there are ways to safely handle somebody who is in crisis like that because you think of them as in crisis and you want to help. And then there's ways to restrain that person. And that can be incredibly harmful. It can cause injury. It can and has caused death. So in particular, the restraint used in that movie, this prone restraint face down, has and probably will again killed autistic people. And 
the fact that it was in there in the first place was horrible. When the, the movie was first streamed because of, you know, the pandemic and everything, autistic advocates and activists went to Twitter and said, Sia, you know, what the fuck? Like, this is incredibly dangerous. Why is this depicted? And she did indicate, I think in an interview and on Twitter, that those scenes would have a warning at the beginning of the movie and that one might be taken out. But of course, there's no follow up on that. Mm. Like Sia said a lot in the lead up to the movie when she began being called out. And then when the movie did come out, when people were asking all these questions of her and saying, how are you going to you know, fix this? How are you going to start to do right by our community? A lot of things were said. None of them were followed up on. So uh, that movie, it, like it was racist, too. It was like there was just it was just a mess. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad it bombed. That might be petty of me, but <laughs> autistic people are not actually precious angels who don't feel anger or, you know, a bit pettier emotions. I can and will be petty. Also, <laughs> uh, it might shock all your viewers. I've already done it once. Autistic people even curse. Sometimes we like drop F bombs. Like mm. we're actually full, complete human beings who experience the full spectrum of emotion. We're not, you know, autonomous little robots and we're not mm-hmm. perfect angels who are indigo children here to like spread love and light. Like we're actually people too. Yeah. <laughs> and then I know you weren't diagnosed as a kid, but being just such a an advocate, can you speak at all to the behavioral therapy that autistic children are often given and, and your yeah. thoughts on that? So this is like where things are getting a little little darker. So if any autistic people are watching, you know, trigger warning, I'm about to get into the real nitty gritty of um, ABA. So applied behavioral analysis started in the 60s. It was kind of as a system of behavioral modification created by this person named Ivor Lovis. And the idea is that you use this very regimented system with strict goals and guidelines and the use of aversives or punishments and rewards to change a person's behavior. This is actually the exact same technique used in gay conversion therapy and in conversion therapy that has been used on trans kids. So the methods are identical. And my friend and a really amazing activist named Amy Sequenza, she says it really well when she would really prefer to hear ABA called autistic conversion therapy. Because they are, literally come from the same man, Ivor Lovis, uh, with his feminine boys experiment, uh, popularized this as conversion therapy for, for gay people and trans people and founded it for autistic kids. So it literally comes from the same place. It is basically like uh, this twin tree that branches from the same root of the idea that some people are wrong that they are defective in some way, that their abnormality, it needs to be dealt with. And the way to deal with it is uh, behavior modification. So it is the most popular method of therapy for autistic kids today. And it is one of those things that takes many different shapes and forms. And the harm it does to autistic people, particularly autistic children, can't really be understated. Uh, There are lots of autistic people who talk about their experiences with ABA as children and now have complex post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms from this experience. Because when you operate from this ABA perspective, you're looking at the behavior of a person. And the presumption is always that autistic behavior is kind of pointless or that you might be flapping your hands or you might be making a certain noise. You might be aversive to touching or hearing certain stimuli and you just have to teach that person to deal with it like there's no question as to why someone rocks or why someone covers their ears it's always okay we're going to train you to stop covering your ears Mm -hmm. and the methods used range from like mild but psychologically and emotionally abusive like withholding a beloved comfort object or toy or food Um, until the behavior is performed to your specification or ranging to (laughs) really horrible like um, the GEDs or electrical stimulation devices used at like up until last year at the Judge Rottenberg Center which uses literal electrical shocks to prevent autistic people from or to attempt to normalize their behavior by shocking them whenever they exhibit autistic behaviors or do anything that you don't like or don't do something they were told to do. So there's this spectrum and people say, well, ABA is gentler now. You know, we don't 
in my practice, we don't use aversives, to which I say, uh, in March, the itinerary, I, I'm not sure exactly where the program for the big ABAI annual convention came out. And one of the events on the program was called, I have it here, um, challenging the FDA ban on electrical stimulation devices. It was listed under BCAB ethics as like a category. And the chair of the symposium at the annual convention for ABAI was listed as Nicholas Lothar of the Judge Rottenberg Center. So like last year, the FDA ruled you can't use electrical shock devices on autistic people anymore to change their behavior, which is inherently ABA. Obviously, Judge Rottenberg Center and other places who want to use electrical stimulation devices don't like that. And if ABA is so much gentler and better and more accepting now, why is their annual convention for the largest organization of ABA practitioners allowing this kind of a symposium and allowing this kind of person to speak? Mm -hmm. And then the other part of that is when it comes to the gentler, kinder ABA it's still psychologically and emotionally damaging because you are still operating from the point, not of how can I help this autistic person be Mm -hmm. happy and healthy? How can I help them make their way through a world not built for them, accommodate themselves? It's how can I normalize their behavior so they're not so darn embarrassing to take out for lunch? Mm -hmm. Like, how can I get this autistic child to constantly self-monitor and self-hate to the point where they are constantly watching themselves training themselves not to stim or to only stim in certain ways that are more acceptable. And it's not about helping that autistic child become a happy, healthy autistic adult. It's all all about this anti-autistic ableism that permeates our society and the ideas that if you act in a certain way, you are, (laughs) you're not worthy of respect. And it's directly contradictory to the message of the neurodiversity movement, which says humans have all kinds of different brains and all kinds of different bodies. And we're, we're going to act and experience the world differently. And that is okay. Being autistic isn't a wrong way of being. It's a different way of being. And I'm sorry <laughs> if you feel a little embarrassed when you see someone rocking in public or if somebody excitedly flaps their hands or makes noises or if seeing somebody atypical bothers you that sucks. And like, that's a you problem. <laughs> like, that's for you to work on with, with your discomfort and ask yourself, like, why might I feel this way? What ableism in my our society and what institutionalized discrimination has led to me being surprised to see disabled people in public and mm-hmm. then feeling so uncomfortable instead of changing the behavior of autistic people, which is always this fool's errand and so destructive. Like, how about we just educate the society around us? How about we make it so that people are more willing to accommodate different ways of being and existing? And I am so anti-ABA, it's not even funny. And I know I'm going to get an influx, like even more than usual messages of people whose kids are in ABA currently, who are ABA therapists, and they're going to say, well, how am I supposed to train my child to use the toilet? How am I supposed to get my kid table ready so he can go to school? Well, my daughter's in it and, and she's learned to talk verbally. Uh, and I say, you don't actually need the behavior modification to raise your children. And autistic children will, in fact, benefit from more of an accepting, accommodating kind of viewpoint. And when parents are willing to meet their kids where they are and work with them, and they're not so focused on this idea of having a more normal child, like that is where the magic happens. But if you are very, you know, if you're embarrassed by your autistic kid and what you want isn't actually for them to be happy and healthy, it's for them to look as normal as possible, then ABA is great and you're going to defend it. And if it's your your job and your livelihood, you're probably going to go after autistic advocates and survivors of ABA who speak out. So it is this huge, like, (laughs) big tension in the community. And there's a lot of really amazing autistic advocates and activists doing work explaining ABA there's really great articles if you look them up. Uh, one in particular by somebody I really respect named Shannon De Roches Rosa is called Why No Autistic Child Should Be an ABA. It's hosted on the Thinking Person's Guide to Autism. And she just really kind of breaks down some common misconceptions and certain therapists who might say, well, my ABA is different. Like she has a response to them as well. And just she puts it, she puts it very simply and very well and is a parent of an autistic child herself who was in you know, engaged in ABA therapy. 
But Shannon learned from that experience and now educates others. And I think that's really powerful when survivors and parents who did buy into the ABA industrial kind of complex uh, now speak out against it. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, in my behavioral class in my clinical psychology program, we talked about it and learned about it as if like, oh, yeah, this is this great thing that we've developed. And that is, you know, and it was only through like, advocates like you and on being on Twitter and reading and like doing a little more investigating that I was like, oh, no, this is actually bad. (laughs) Wait, you learned it in your class? Yeah, we learned about ABA. Yeah. As like something that you could do. Well, yeah, like as a treatment and, you know, and there are kids in my class who that's their job was that they they were ABA. Like they they weren't necessarily licensed in it, but they I think they're like kind of trainers, like teachers, aides who help with yeah, it. And, exactly. You know, um, and that was like their it's, job it's, was it's doing ABA. so ubiquitous. When I do step out of my little bubble of like, you know, leftist neurodiversity mm-hmm. movement, autistic <laughs> activists, and I kind of like I go to a conference to speak or something and I do hear parents talking about ABA and just behavior modification in general as this positive, helpful thing and even this necessary thing. There's a lot of this fear rhetoric uh, to keep parents, you know, invested Mm -hmm. in ABA saying, you know, you need that earlier intervention if you want the best outcomes. Uh, You need to have the 20 to 40 hours a week of ABA therapy for children who are preschool age. Like it's so much and it's just taken at face value and accepted as good. And a lot of it like seems superficially good. Like when an ABA therapist is first going to say, come to your house or start working with your child, they don't immediately jump to the adversives and taking away the loved things. And, and, you know, they first do this thing called pairing, which is they literally just play with the kid and make them like them and encourage parents to hold back favorite toys or snacks for when the ABA therapist comes to literally like condition the child to anticipate it and enjoy it. And then that's where the work starts. And that's where it gets really destructive and causes a lot of the emotional damage. And it enforces that masking Mm -hmm. that you have all throughout your life, that self-loathing, that constant anxiety and self-monitoring that leads to burnout. So it's all, it's this connected web of, of really unfortunate things just taken at face value and widely accepted. And it's interesting having, you know, grown up with OCD, it's such two different things, you know? So like where my instinct was like, oh, that's interesting because for me, it's like exposure therapy was helpful. Like yeah. there, there's such a difference between these two things where like with me, I say I have OCD, whereas like, you know, I am OCD and like, but they are just completely different things to have. And so for you to, to lead with identity first with autism, I think makes so much sense. Yeah. Um, and then for me, like it, it doesn't make sense for me to do that. And I, you know, but like, yeah. I think sometimes there's these thoughts of like everything in the mental health field, we should approach it the same way. Mm-hmm. It should either be identity yeah. or not identity. You should either mm-hmm. have behavioral modification or not have behavior modification, but it really does depend on what the person has and is dealing with and it yeah, needs exactly. to be approached differently. Yeah. Like the exposure therapy is done a lot in ABA. And Mm -hmm. so say an autistic child um, cannot stand the microwave beeping. Mm -hmm. Like when the microwave is going and they're anticipating that beep, they start acting out because that behavior is communication. They're saying, I'm about to be in a great amount of pain. Please stop this. Mm -hmm. And then when the microwave beeps, they might cover their ears. They might rock. They might scream to try to drown out the microwave beeping because it's that thing I was mentioning earlier. It might not bother anyone else around them, but it can cause actual pain for us because of our levels of like sensory sensitivity. Right. So, and then the ABA says, okay, we're going to do exposure therapy. We are going to literally hold their hands down at their sides so they can't cover their ears. We are going to punish them by taking away things that they love. And we're going to reward them by giving them snacks or (laughs) hugs or playtime or things that they like when they do what we want. And we are eventually going to teach them to endure that pain mm-hmm. like that is it like because it doesn't ever get any better for us right and yeah. I think that's a big difference is with OCD it really can like I can get over like through exposure therapy things can become less overwhelming to me they can become like I can get used to them you know yeah. like just in being able to now have a dog where in the past I wouldn't have been able to have a dog but that's different than if you have yeah, autism exactly. you know and so to to treat them the same way is, is harmful and inaccurate it is a lot of this treating it the same way is this assumption that like you said everybody is gonna 
experience the world the same way. And, and then mm-hmm. also there's this, like everything about behaviorism and, and autistic people and so far our understanding of autistic people is really only catching up because to this point it's been non-autistic people looking at an autistic person mm-hmm. and saying, oh, they're hitting their own head with their hands. Who knows why? I'm going to stop it. Like, <laughs> There's no question yeah. as to what is going on in the internal world. And there's they often... are communicating with you. Yeah. This is the thing is when you talk about when you were saying like, oh, we, you know, ABA made my kid verbal. It's like, OK, but like they were communicating with you the whole time. Exactly. You just weren't listening. It, yeah, they weren't listening because there's this presumption of incompetence when autistic people do have like speech apraxia, so they can't speak verbally. Or there's just this strong, overwhelming preference for spoken language. Like something you hear a lot is, my child can't even say that they love me. But like that autistic kid can run up to you and give you a hug, or they Mm -hmm. can sit beside you while they engage in their favorite activity, or they can learn to communicate through AAC, like augmentative Mm -hmm. and alternative methods of communication, like typing on an iPad or using a letter board to communicate. But there's still, because of just the ableism that affects every part of our our society and just bases a lot of our assumptions about what a person is Mm -hmm. and like what a person should be like. You know, you have to hear it mouth words, like from the mouth. It has to sound right. Like, so it's, it's exactly what you said, Gabby. It's like behavior is communication. There's more than one way to communicate. But when you're operating from this assumption that autistic methods are wrong and mm-hmm. non-autistic methods of communication are right, then you, you might not hear what an autistic person is saying to you. This was so helpful and insightful. And would you like to play a game show? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> abrupt total shift, which is no, what we do on this show. No, I, this, this is great. Um, and I would love to, to play Amazing. a game show. Stick around after the break. We'll be playing hypotheticals. Hi everyone, Allison here. Anyone who knows me well knows that I love to read. I am always looking for new books and that is why I'm so excited that this episode is sponsored by Book of the Month. Book of the Month's mission is to help readers discover new books they love and to promote the work of emerging authors. It was so fun for me to get to pick which book I wanted to read this month and have it shipped right to my door. Book of the Month makes it easy to decide which book to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles. They pick some of the best new books for you to choose from. All the books are good, so you can't go wrong. Every aspect of the Book of the Month experience is designed to be fun and special for readers. They have a highly anticipated release at the beginning of each month. Books are delivered in this really adorable bright blue box, and there's a fun app to help you pick your book and track your reading process. They also offer great values on new release hardcover fiction. It's much cheaper than other options. Shipping is always free. And with a loyalty program, you get rewards and even lower prices the longer you stay as a member. My first book from Book of the Month was The Husbands by Holly Gramazio. I am tearing through this book. It is so fun. It's basically about this woman who one day comes home and there's a husband in her apartment and she's like, where did you come from? And then she figures out that every time her new husband goes into the attic, a new husband comes out and she's she's like shuffling through all these different husbands from the attic trying to figure out which one is the best. It is right up my alley and I love it so much. So if you want to take part in Book of the Month and have a brand new book shipped right to your door every single month, go to bookofthemonth.com and get your first book for $5 with code PEDALS. That's $5 off with code PEDALS. I cannot recommend this enough. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you all about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. 
This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Right before I found out about this project, my mom made an offhand comment about wanting to write a memoir because she had such a wild childhood and there are all these things she's never really talked to us about. But asking someone to sit down and write a memoir is kind of daunting. So then I got her mylifeinabook.com and now she's getting prompts to answer on a weekly basis and it's a lot easier than just undertaking an entire memoir. I'm so excited to see what my mom does with mylifeinabook.com because she's someone who doesn't always feel comfortable just sharing about herself, but having these prompts and knowing that I really want to hear her answers is going to inspire her to probably share more with me about her life and her upbringing than I've ever been shared with before. So I'm so excited for that. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code just between us at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com. Use code just between us for 10% off today. between us it's time for america's favorite game show hypotheticals you and gabby are going to be my contestants i'm going to give you a range of hypothetical situations you can ask as many clarifying questions as you have tell me what you would do in that situation and then i decide if i like the answer so much (laughs) like society deciding what what behavior is normalized wow allison represents society you heard (laughs) it here first Okay, so our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You find out that your partner of three years never broke up with their previous significant other before their significant other left for a five-year research trip in Antarctica. There is minimal service in Antarctica, and they only ever communicate like once a month through email. When you confront them about this, they say, I don't want them to get too lonely out there. There's not much going on. Would you stay with this cheater? No, I don't want to fall into the stereotype of autistic people who are like very truthful and respect like (laughs) justice and a sense of right and wrong inherently um, because we're all different. But I'm kind of being that stereotype right now. Like, I think that's valid in this situation. Like, maybe I am doing the autistic black and white thinking, but that's that's how I feel. I I would I, you've lied to me for years, and that's not very sexy of you. So. Yeah, I ju- I just found out right now after three years. Yeah, that, that this person in Antarctica thinks that they're still dating your partner, but that person's going to be back in two years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the plan was to just... Yeah, what was the partner's plan, exactly? So the plan was then when they came back to be like, oh, we've changed. I think this isn't working anymore. Do that over email then right now. But then yeah. they're stuck in Antarctica with nobody and they feel really lonely. I don't want to assume anything about this Antarctica person, but like, <laughs> I think people who go there generally do it because they really are passionate about penguins or something, you mm-hmm. know, like, I think they'll be fine. <laughs> they chose to go there. Yeah. That's all right. You're making some good points. Turns out the person in Antarctica is your soulmate. Oh, how do I start to get to know them? You don't. So I never meet them. You know, you guys never cross paths. I'm sorry. That's really sad, Allison. Are we, is this where we learn that Allison is of the mind that you only have one soulmate? For this game, yes, absolutely. In real life, could it be further from the truth? (laughs) But the world of hypotheticals is its own world. Yeah. Okay. The (laughs) world of hypotheticals is like a cinematic universe. It only exists in hypotheticals. Gotcha. So there is some kind of expanded lore that I'm... I'm not privy to yet. And it's changing constantly. Yeah, <laughs> and the rules are whatever Allison decides that day. And sometimes there are soulmates and sometimes there aren't soulmates. And Allison is the only person who knows who everyone's soulmate is. See, th- this is a game that changes all the time. There's one arbiter of what's right and wrong and the rules <laughs> are constantly shifting. I've been preparing my whole life for this by living in a non-autistic society. So I'm good. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. (laughs) Okay, our next game. Is this a date? A friend of a friend pays you to house it for them when they are out of town. They come back a few hours earlier than planned and insist on making dinner for you as a thank you. They then make a joke about how until 7 p.m. when you are supposed to leave, you are technically living together. Is this a date? I think that might come into my mind. 
that they might Ooh. have like romantic intentions. And this was a kind of a way to get me over for dinner. And this is where I'm going to shock all the non-autistic people in the audience. So I would ask. <laughs> I would not presume I knew what they were thinking. Me and too. I would say, is this a date? I love to ask. I yeah. ask every time, like, I know that this is a thing in the queer community of like, is this mm-hmm. a date? I don't know. And we're just hanging out. No, straight. Is this a date? What's happening now? Do <laughs> they always give you a straight answer? No, but you got to ask. It's true. Yeah, you might ask and then they might have the hamster wheel running in their brain thinking, oh, no, are they asking because they don't want a date? Like, mm-hmm. how this is going to go? And they're trying to like read my body language and I'm just sitting there expecting an answer. So, yeah, they can say, oh, no, of course this wasn't a date. Like, don't be weird. <laughs> yeah, why am I expected to stay till the time that they said, even though they're home early? Also that. Because they're making you <laughs> dinner. They're making you dinner. Well, like, did they ask if they yeah, could they do were that? Like, or did... Let me make you some dinner as a thank oh, okay. you. And I, so I was into it. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, hmm. I would ask and... I think I might even go a step further. This is advice I give autistic people who are like trying to date and like having, having struggling with this. How are you supposed to just know if people like you? So I might even go a step further and say, I would be cool if this was a date, if it was, but if not, like you're a great friend. So (laughs) no pressure. Wow. That's maybe my favorite answer I've ever gotten on this show. (laughs) This is not just for autistic people. Everyone should just ask if it's a date. I agree. I, I totally but agree. But in, in this case, it was not a date and then you get embarrassed and have to leave before dessert. Oh. But the dessert was going to be disgusting. I was about <laughs> to ask. You knew I was going to ask what was dessert. Yeah, I was just thinking. <laughs> I'm not a big dessert fan, so I'd rather like, can I have a Tupperware container of more of the dinner to go? Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm happy. <laughs> okay, our final game. Is this person an alien or just rude? It's me. <laughs> Honestly, once again, the media's portrayal of autism is encapsulated in is this Aliens person or in robots. Yeah. <laughs> you go to collect your mail from your mailbox at the end of your driveway. In this hypothetical, you live in a house. So congratulations. Wow. Cool. And you find that all of the mail has been opened and organized for you. When you look around confused, your next door neighbor pops their head out and shouts, had a little extra time on my hands and wanted to make sure there weren't any surprises waiting in there for you. You can buy me a drink later as a thank you. Bottom shelf is fine. Is this person an alien or just rude? Gabby and I are having similar thoughts, I think. I think we're on the same brainwave. This person is very neurodivergent. So they don't follow the laws of... of, That's a felony to open someone's mail. Yeah, so that was the second part of my thought. This person's very neurodivergent and they have crossed an actual legal boundary. (laughs) So, like, I think that, like, they're there. That's a good chance to say. Um, Opening my mail is illegal. Mm -hmm. Please do not do that. Uh... And then introduce myself. I have a little bit of that social thing where like I try to be nice to people first. Mm-hmm. And so like I've had so many bad meetings with people who later became friends because I'm autistic or they're not autistic. Like, you know, so I've had so many interactions that were kind of messy at first, but then, you know, it's moved over. So I'm willing to give almost anyone a chance. And yeah, this person like committed a felony, but also, I don't know, I've done ridiculous things. I've done, th- I've like, I've been this person with like a little less of like illegality. So now if we go out to a drink, is that a date? Absolutely. Oh, well. <laughs> All right. I'm willing to give it a chance. The whole thing was just an elaborate flirt. Oh, ooh. <laughs> like I'm feeling for this hypothetical person. Like, and, and very, they're also just very nosy and they wanted to see if you were in debt before they flirted. Oh, yeah, no, I I don't think I actually want to be friends with this person. <laughs> yeah. But I also one alien to another. Like, <laughs> let me help you. Like, I, I'll help you figure out this Earthling thing. And trust me, they don't like it when you open their mail. Like, I can tell you that for sure. This was so wonderful. Thank you so much. But before we let people go, we like them to rate their experience being on the podcast. Um, if you had fun, if you had a terrible time. Any, you know, constructive criticism you might have? I had fun. I did not have a terrible time. (laughs) I think it's so funny that uh, your last question kind of like leaned into the alien autistic people 
trope, like just by accident. And I hope you don't feel bad for that. No, I don't really have any constructive criticism. When this was first floated as an idea of having me on and I asked for some of the questions ahead of time, uh, I was happy that you would accommodate me in that way so I could prepare. But also I was just very impressed by the questions you asked and clearly you had done your research and uh, like the terminology you used was right and you were clearly operating from having like a foundational knowledge of what actual autistic people are saying and that's why I said yes to this like if the questions had been iffy or from like a very uneducated point of view I might not have come on but I felt like I would be welcome and I could just say my sincere thoughts so not criticism just well done. <laughs> Oh, oh the opposite of criticism, <laughs> a compliment. Yeah. Affirmation. Wow. Oh, thank you so much. And where can people follow you and find out all of your work? So uh, I am Neuro Wonderful pretty much everywhere. You can find me on Twitter a lot these days. I do have a YouTube channel from 2014 to 2016. I uploaded a series of educational videos about autism and associated topics called Ask an Autistic. You can find that uh, on YouTube. You can just Google Ask an Autistic or Amethyst Shaver. And um, also, I was recently featured in a book that came out by Beacon Press called Sincerely Your Autistic Child. And it is a collection of essays from autistic people written for parents, letting parents know what we wish our parents had known. And it's just chock full of really great writing and amazing advice. Uh, so I highly recommend you check that book out. And I have a little piece in there. Amazing. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. This Thank is you so, so wonderful. Much. Thank oh. you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Amethyst Shaver for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin, and also Gabby Dunn, who had to go throw up from her migraine. <laughs> produced by Melissa DeMonts. Executive produced by Brett Boham, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Caburns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or youtube.com slash show. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. And follow me and Gabby on Instagram at, at Allison Raskin or at Emotional Support Lady or at Gabby Road. Uh, and thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review. And we hope Gabby feels better. Forever. Dog.